Church, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, good evening, not good morning. Uh, My name is Alex. I serve as one of the pastors here at City Light South. It is good to be with you guys. Uh, As you guys know, or if you're here as family, we've been tracking through the Gospel of Matthew the last couple of weeks as we've walked through our Advent series. And that's why we land here today in Matthew chapter 2 as we study kind of the second half of this chapter and close out our Advent series as we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, what he's done for us, and how we get to live in light of that. But before we get there, I want to invite each of you to open up your Bibles uh, because I'm going to have you guys flipping back and forth a little bit as we study God's Word today, just so you guys know that I'm not making this stuff up. It's actually in there, and we're talking about what God has given to us in His Word. So as you're flipping open to Matthew chapter 2, I have a confession to make for each of you. I'm not a huge fan of Christmas music. Okay. (laughs) Okay, I think I'm the only one who ever gets booed on this stage. (laughs) Ricky never gets booed. Um, So next week, I don't know, maybe I'll just start boo chants, and you guys just go along with it. Um, But okay, Uh, second confession. That's not the only one. Second confession. I have trust issues. I have trust issues. I honestly couldn't tell you why I struggle with trust issues. Uh, I think there's a mix of different reasons. One of them is because I'm a first-generation kid. Both of my parents migrated from Mexico. I was born in Great Island, raised there. But something that my mom constantly hammered down my brain as I was a kid is she just was like, don't trust anybody that's not your family. Don't trust anyone that's not your family. Your family's the only ones who have it, uh, who care about you. And she just continued to drill that. And so I wonder if that's part of the reason why, or if it has to do with just throughout the years of life, uh, there were different circumstances, conversations, people that I would interact with that I loved and cared about, and they just did, failed to follow through on promises. There were lies told, whatever it was. But I have just this weird thing in my heart that it takes me a while to actually trust people or believe what it is that they say. And trust tends to impact a lot. It impacts a lot of different things when we're making decisions. It impacts how we respond in different situations. And if we're all honest in the room, I think each of us has a little bit of trust issues. Even if you're one of the most uh, just loving, compassionate people who always believes the best in others... I genuinely think that at the core of our hearts, many of us struggle to trust people or things, uh, different uh, things we could read from wherever. Think of it this way. If you get a phone call and you don't know what the phone number is, you're not picking it up. Why? You think it's a telemarketer. You're like, ah, this person's trying to con me out of money. Trust issues. Second thing, uh, you don't, you see someone turning or you're about to turn left and you see the other person turning right, you kind of slow down and wait. Why? You don't think they're actually going to turn in the correct lane. Uh, Next one, when you're sitting there and you're uh, planning a vacation and you're thinking, oh man, I want to go to this really nice resort. You go to the website, it's got great reviews. Mm -mm. I got to go find some reviews somewhere else. And so you find like 15 other reviews before actually saying, oh, that's actually a good place to actually go visit. And so I think all of us have these little things 
that we struggle with to actually trust, whether it's people, resorts, vacations, or whatever it is, we all have these things that we struggle in our friends, families, relationships with trust. And oftentimes, we don't just struggle with trusting people or places or reviews, but we struggle with trusting God. We struggle with trusting who God is and that he says he is who he says he is. And so sometimes it leads us to neglect him. Sometimes it leads us to ignore him. Sometimes it leads us to completely walk away from him. And what we're gonna see today in Matthew chapter two is that Jesus is the promised Messiah to come that Jesus is the one who saves the world, that he is the one that we can truly trust in all things because he does what he says he'll do. Through three promises this morning, we're gonna see that the promised Messiah is the one who we can truly trust. So if you would, open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter two, read with me again, starting in verse 13. We're gonna read about a new freedom. Matthew 2, verse 13, it says this. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The first point we see in the text this morning is a new freedom, a new freedom. So we've been tracking through the gospel of Matthew. And so I want to recap for us a little bit what happened right before this. Right before this section, Ricky tells us, uh, taught us the story of, of the wise men going to visit Jesus at his birth, going and, and seeing this star and going to Herod, asking this question. And there's the wise men, or Ricky called them Magi. And I think he said that just because it rhymes with Jedi and he's a big Star Wars fan. But we'll keep rolling along. So Jesus is born. The wise men or magi, they, they go to Herod and they're like, hey, where is he supposed to be born? Where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Herod goes, I don't know. Let me ask the scribes and Pharisees. They figure it out. Herod sends them on their way, but he sends them on their way not to actually find out for him because he wants to worship him, but because he wants to kill him. And so while they go to visit the, birth, the born baby Jesus, they get there, they see him, and once they're about to leave, in a dream, an angel speaks to them and says, don't go back. Don't go back the way you came because Herod's going to kill you. And so they go back a different way. And uh, then after that gets us to verse 13, the angel then visits Joseph in a dream. He appears to him, Jesus' earthly stepfather, and the angel tells him, Herod is going to kill the baby. You guys need to flee. You need to run. You need to go to Egypt. So Joseph bravely gets up in the middle of the night. He takes Mary, he takes Jesus, and they go to Egypt until Herod dies. Now, we don't really know how long they stay in Egypt. Could have been a couple weeks, could have been months, could have been years. We're not really entirely sure how long that time period was, but what we do know is that Herod was a vicious king. I mean, he's sent for the slaughter of young boys under the age of two. Church history tells us that Herod, he murdered his favorite wife. He had her two sons strangled. 
He had a third son executed because he was trying to promote himself as the next king after Herod. The dude was bad news. And as we think of this whole story and as we see this guy, Herod, he's coming after the savior of the world. Why? Because his authority is being threatened. If there's another king of the Jews, that means he's out. And so he feels threatened. So there's this journey to Egypt that Joseph takes Mary and baby Jesus on, and this wouldn't have been easy travel. 75 to 100 miles, and their camel doesn't exactly have high beams on the front side of it. And so depending where they were headed, it could have taken weeks. But more likely than not, they headed to a town called Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great. Uh, there were mil- a million Jews said to be there, a massive population of the Jewish people because of the Maccabean revolt that we talked about just a few years or weeks ago. But we see that there is a place where they could go and rest and be comforted to not have to hide from this guy who's trying to kill anyone who's under the age of two as a young boy. And that gets us to verse 15. Verse 15 It's a prophecy. And this prophecy, it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Here's a challenge I'd like to give to each and every single one of you this evening. If you're reading your Bible and you see the bolded letters or you see something in quotation marks, usually there's a footnote somewhere on the page. Match the footnote and actually go back and read where the prophecy comes from because that's gonna help you in your own personal study to understand what the passage is trying to teach you. And so we look, hey, okay, where is out of Egypt I called my son? Where's that from? Okay, the Bible tells us that this is a quote from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse one. So I want us to flip to Hosea, chapter 11, verse one together so we can see where this verse is truly quoted from. And hey, guess what? You got to use the table of contents? That's okay. The only reason I know where it's at is because I got my little ribbon in there. So you're fine. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read just a couple of verses to give us a little bit more context than just the quoted scripture. It reads this. When Hosea was, or when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel uh, was leaving them, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, talking them, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love to them. I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be his king, because they refused to repent. Okay, so Hosea 11.1, that doesn't really sound like a prophecy, and I still have no idea what's happening in that scripture. What does that all mean? Well, uh, there's this thing with prophecies, when we look to them and we read them, they're not always forward predictions, 
They're what we can call typologies or types of prophecies. They're pictures, they're illustrations that point forward to something else. So as we read Hosea 11.1, there's a picture that we're given that we're supposed to kind of look towards, okay, Israel's history, how does this make sense with what Matthew's doing in chapter two and talking about Jesus and, and going to Egypt? And here, Hosea is writing to the northern tribes of Israel. He's writing to the northern tribes of Israel because they're about to be captured by Assyria. They're about to go into exile. Someone's about to come in, take them over, and bring them into their land and treat them as slaves. And so God speaks through the prophet Hosea here, and he tells them that they're going to be enslaved, but that they can trust him because he has saved them from slavery before. Now, if we think of Israel's history, Hosea points to one of the most major pieces of history that most of us maybe remember the story of Moses and the Exodus, the Red Sea parting, and Israel being in slavery to Egypt. They were in bondage to Egypt, and he uses Moses, Moses to free them out of that slavery. He doesn't leave them to suffer, but he brings them home. He brings them to the promised land. So as Hosea is writing to the people who are about to be enslaved, he reminds them, he says, God's already freed you from slavery before. Why wouldn't he do it again? He's comforting them. He's saying, in what feels like great slavery, there is great hope to look forward to. That we do serve and worship and love a God who continues to free people from being captive to the things of this world and the rulers of this world. And so there's this fulfillment typology. There, there's this picture, this illustration for them to look at and see while something horrible is happening, there is hope on the horizon. And as we look at Matthew chapter two, we're reminded of the illustration of great despair that happened with the Exodus and great despair that's happening as baby Jesus has to be on the run as a refugee to Egypt. And they're reminded of the Exodus and how God freed them from Egypt. And once again, God will free them over and over and over again because God is a God who does what he says he will do. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who is true to who he is. And in Egypt, Israel were slaves, bonded physically, right, in chains. With Hosea, Hosea was riding to the northern kingdoms, and the northern kingdoms, they were worshiping the other gods. It says that they were worshiping the Baals. They were burning offerings to other gods. They were worshiping other people, and that led to them being taken over and being uh, enslaved at that point. And then if we think of Hosea's greater story, God sent him on a mission to pursue a woman who wasn't actually wanting to be faithful to him. And over and over again, there's this reoccurring picture of God's people running away from him, and yet there's a promise that he's going to restore everything and bring them back home. And here it's the same story again. He's going to bring them back home. Here's the beautiful news that while all of us in this world today, how this applies to us today is we too are in bondage to different things. We're in bondage to our pride, our selfishness, our desire to continue to reach the top, our hope to have the perfect Christmas Eve family dinner. We're in bondage to people's approval. We're in bondage to money. We're in bondage to just making sure that we have everything absolutely perfect. And if we don't, the world's gonna end. And yet, while we may not be in physical slavery, 
being taken captive by some other country, I want to let you know that there is great hope to be freed from whatever it is that has bondage and has you enchained in your slaves, or as a slave. So as we sit here and we think of this passage and we think of at the Exodus that Hosea is pointing back to, as we think of baby Jesus having to be on the run and Joseph worried in the middle of the night, traveling, taking his family 75 to 100 miles, remember that there's great hope, that in tribulation, there's an end that we know what it looks like. And it's the Messiah of the world, the Savior actually being taken care of. There's a beautiful thing in prophecy, a new Exodus while they were freed out of slavery, we too are freed out of slavery. It's just a different kind. It's our sin. It's what we're in bondage to today, ourselves, our flesh, our desires of the world, making ourselves the best, the greatest. And yet Jesus can free us from that too. And so as we think of this story, there is a new redemption in Christ. There is new freedom that we can have in Jesus himself that he's come to give us, that we can trust in him, that he would free us from being enslaved to the things of the world because he promised to bring his son out of Egypt. And he did. And he promises to you to bring you out of Egypt. And he will. So the first promise, we can trust God because of the new exodus. We can trust God because of the new exodus. So let's keep reading how we can trust God even when there's pain in our lives. So keep reading with me, starting in verse 16, Matthew chapter two, it reads this. Then Herod, when he realized that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with time, he learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Our second point this afternoon is that there's hope even in pain. When Herod figures out that he's been outsmarted by the wise men, he flies into a huge rage. Remember, this guy's absolutely wicked, terrible man. And he gets super frustrated to the point to where he sends this decree to go and take care of all of the young children, the young boys who are under the age of two. Not your typical Christmas story. And it sounds absolutely terrible. Parents have their livelihood threatened. I can't imagine what fathers and mothers are going through in the middle of all of that, great fear coming over them. But in the middle of all of this, in the middle of losing their children, even though they did nothing wrong, kids were massacred. We have another quote from the Old Testament, another promise from God that reigns true. And this too is also one with a terrible event linked to it. So Matthew includes the prophet Jeremiah here. So where in Jeremiah is this quote? Well, he takes it out of Jeremiah chapter 31. So if you would flip to Jeremiah 31, again, table of contents. Hey, it's totally all right. I got to use it all the time too. I just got my ribbon. So I looked at the table of contents earlier. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 15, reads this. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
a lament with bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's our quote. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from, your, from tears for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. There, this is the Lord's declaration and your children will return to their own territory. I've surely heard Ephraim moaning. You disciplined me and I have uh, been disciplined like an untrained calf. Take me back so that I can return for you. Lord, you are my God. And so here we start to read this uh, prophecy out of Jeremiah. And two, it doesn't sound like something that's like fortune telling or what we typically think prophecy is or what it's like. But remember, this is an illustration. It's a, it's a type. It's a, it's a painting for us to see, hey, something has happened in the past and now something similar is happening here today. So how does that function? How does that work? How does this painting all come together for us? Who is Rachel and where is Ramah? To us, it just seem like weird names and like a weird place. How does that all come together? Well, Rachel is one of the wives of Jacob. Jacob's name was also Israel. And so as we think of Rachel, she's also known as the mother of Israel, as they had the children. So this is a medical, this is a metaphorical title given to Rachel and a story that we see that, hey, in Jeremiah, he's writing to the southern tribes who are about to be taken out by Babylon. This is another time a different country is coming in, oppressing the people, taking them away to slavery and just ruling over them bringing them in and saying, you're ours to do with whatever we want to do with you. And so here, Jeremiah gives this picture of, of Rachel, the mother of Israel, weeping over her children as they're ripped away from their homeland, as they're taking captive. And Ramah is, is a town that's just north of Jerusalem. And Ramah is actually the town where all the people would be taken. It's almost like, a, like, a, like an internment camp where they'd take all the people before taking them into Babylon. So they, they would know that this place was, was bad news, that, that tears come out of that place. That's where families are ripped apart and taken away. That's where people are taken into exile to be taken as slaves. And so here we hear the voice crying out of Ramah. It's Rachel. It's, it's pain because the people are enslaved. But as we read this, and as we know about the terrible exile that happened for Israel and God's people in that time, Jeremiah paints a different picture for us because he doesn't just, just say, hey, in the middle of tragedy, just be sad. In the middle of tragedy, just keep weeping. That's not at all what Jeremiah tells them. He tells them in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 31, he says, your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope in your future. He points forward. Now, us being on this side of history, we know that Israel did get to go back. God held true to his promise. Israel did get to go back to their promised land. And what was painful, difficult, hard, God still moved in the mess. And in the pain, he was still there. And in the pain, he pointed them forward to the hope. And in all of that, he reminds them, I am who I say I am. I do what I say I do. I'm a loving, compassionate God who runs towards you and brings you home. 
there's hope to come in the future. There's hope to look forward to. So why does Matthew include it in chapter two? Well, as we think about what's happening, there's mothers weeping because their children are being ripped away from them. And in great pain, Matthew sees the beautiful illustration that's there. That back with Jeremiah, there were mothers who were weeping because their children were being taken captive into slavery. And here, again, mothers are weeping because their children are being taken captive by some king who thinks he could rule the world with an iron fist and do whatever he wants to do because he's terrified of the true king who's going to come. And in all of it, God reminds us that there's hope even when we're in the middle of pain. That there is hope even when we are in the middle of pain because time and time again, we're reminded that there is a true savior in the story. While he is an infant in this story that we're reading and we're studying, we're reminded that God is protecting his son by sending him to Egypt. He's protecting his son and keeping him alive because he's got something to do. And that's take the cross for us. And that's to live the perfect life so that we could have everlasting life with him so that he would be completely righteous so that he could take on our sin. So that we could take on his righteousness through faith and faith in him alone. One of the most horrible things to ever happen in their lives. God tells them this is not permanent. This is not permanent and there is hope. And I know this is not easy. I know it hurts. I know it's painful. I know it's not fun, but my son is coming and it's gonna be good. And it's gonna be all good. Because in the end of things, he makes things all good. Over and over and over again. That's the God that we worship. And that same promise from God is true for us today that there is hope even in the middle of the pain. Because I know there's pain in this world, and I know that there's pain with many of you in this very room. I know there's hard things that you guys walk through, and I know sometimes we have to experience really wicked things. And I think sometimes the holiday season and Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's and all that stuff starts to happen, and we get prepared, and we think we have to have this picture-perfect Christmas. And then some family drama slips in. And we just get really frustrated. And we start to realize, man, my family is not as perfect as I thought they were, or as I hoped they were. Or there's frustration in marriage struggles that start to build up and you just don't know what to do with it and you're feeling like you're alone. Or there's financial struggles where you, you feel like you can't buy your kid the Christmas gift that you really want to get them. Or the bills start to pile up and you're just like, I don't know what I'm gonna do this month. Work feels like it's disappearing and your boss is hammering after you and says, hey, you need to make sure you get your stuff done or else you're gone. Maybe it's your first Christmas that you've had without someone who's been part of your family. Maybe it's time where you're reflecting back and realizing, oh my gosh, this is the first time we're gonna celebrate this time without them. And I feel like sometimes we just try to paint over it. We just try to ignore it. God's not trying to ignore it. He says there's hope in the middle of pain. That while on this earth and in this place, there are things that are difficult, hard, family loss, financial struggles, frustrations, annoying things that just won't stop. There's something good coming on the other end. 
That's Jesus himself. Not an absolute answer to the exact problem or circumstance that you have, but it's the fact that the redeemer of the world has come, that he's lived the perfect life that we could never, we could give everything over to him and completely trust in him for what he's done. And he will restore things and make all things new. That's a promise that we have. Jeremiah 31 is not just in this section and in this chapter for uh, no reason because it has Rachel's name and Ramah. But if you keep reading Jeremiah 31, it's actually one of the most well-known passages in the entire Old Testament because it includes what we call the new covenant, the new promise that we have from God. He says this in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will put my teaching within them and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. That's good news, is it? That is good news that we have a king who forgives our iniquities and our sin, even though we don't deserve forgiveness. How can we trust God in the middle of pain? How can we trust God when everything just feels like it's crashing down? How can we trust God when it feels like there's no hope? Remember, there's hope in Jesus. There is great hope in Jesus and what he's done for us. There is great hope in the fact that the king of kings, the Lord of lords, sits on his throne right now, and we get to worship him. That is the good God that we sing to today. And if we're sitting here and we feel like, God, you just don't get it. You just don't understand my pain. You, I, I just don't understand why you would ignore me through all of this, Lord. I want to remind you that the father sent his son to die a painful death. The father knows pain. He knows pain greatly. But he sent his son so that we could have everlasting life with him, so that we could have hope in the middle of pain, hope to look forward to from the king of kings. And ultimately, Jesus' death, his righteousness is given to us, and we get to have that promise of the new heart in Jeremiah 31. We get to have the promise and the blessing from God because of what Jesus has done, all by faith, not by trying to clean yourself up, not by trying to be the perfect person, not by saying, I just have to do everything right, and then God's going to accept me. He's already accepted you because of what his son did. It's just complete faith in him. It is giving it all over to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's the promise of the new covenant that we look to. That's why Matthew 2 includes it here, that the Christmas season is an opportunity to remember the first coming of Jesus as a baby. It is a great opportunity to remember the advent, the coming of the King, but it's also a great reminder for us of the second advent, the second coming of the King to return, to restore all things, to make it all new. Great hope that we have. No more tears, that it'll all be wiped away because of what Christ has done. What good news is that, that we get to celebrate? No more suffering, no more hurt, no more pain, everlasting joy because of the King of Kings and what he's done for us. That is good news. Matthew 2 shows us that there is still hope in pain because Jesus has done what he said he would do. The second reason that we can keep trusting God is because he continues to fulfill his promises. Because he continues to do what he says he would do. So let's keep reading for the third reason why we can trust in Jesus this Christmas. Read with me, Matthew chapter 2 again. Starting in verse 19, it says this. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. 
So he got up and he took the child and his mother and he entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and he settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. That he would be called a Nazarene. Third point for us from the text this afternoon. Third point, the rejected Nazarene. The rejected Nazarene. So Herod, evil, wicked king, dies. Angel gives Joseph good news. Hey, he's gone. You could go back. So Joseph starts to go, oh, sweet. Yes, we're going home. Starts to make his way back. Here's his son, Archelaus, uh, is now in charge. And uh, Joseph starts to go, hmm, that doesn't sound very good. Don't know I really want to go back there. Uh, So he's scared, filled with fear. What happens in that moment? Angel speaks to them again, and he sends them to a different direction. Now, Archelaus is just as wicked as his father. Turns out he was absolutely despised by the Jews. In fact, it was so bad. He was so bad that Caesar of Rome, Caesar of Rome had to kick him out. That's how bad it was. Caesar of Rome kicked him out because he didn't want another Jewish revolt to happen. He didn't want another Jewish revolt. And because of this, because he's still ruling and it's dangerous, he sends Joseph. He says, hey, you need to go to Galilee, back to Nazareth. So Joseph probably kind of looks at the angel like, hmm, that's home. That doesn't sound so good. Because if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about uh, Mary and Joseph, right? She was pregnant before they were married. And in an honor-shame culture, they would have looked at her like she cheated on her husband or like they had sex before marriage. And because of that, there would have been this huge cloud around them where the whole family probably would have shut them out. And the angel's kind of telling them, hey, you, you should go back home. Hmm. Okay, I guess I'll go back home. But Egypt sounds pretty nice. But I guess I'll go back home. So they get rolling back to uh, Nazareth. And now as they get there... We have to see, okay, Nazareth, uh, it's a weird small town that actually most of Israel really didn't pay much attention to or like. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we have that story with Nathaniel. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The town's insignificant. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's how insignificant that town is. It's like growing up in Grand Island. (laughs) There really ain't nothing going on over there. But I'll be there tonight, I guess. (laughs) Um, So we get to the third prophecy here. We get to the third prophecy where it says he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, Uh, it says that he would be called a Nazarene. Where is this at? Who can tell me? Yeah, I couldn't tell you either. We don't have it recorded in the Old Testament. What do we do with that? Does that mean it's not true? Why is it there? How does that make sense? How how can we trust this? Well, just because we don't have it written down, does that mean that it's not true? No. If, If we look at verse 23 again, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, 
There he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Hmm, multiple prophets said that. Okay, multiple prophets said that. Remember, the Hebrew culture is an oral culture. They they would have said a lot of these things because most of the people couldn't read and write. And so we can have confidence that this was something that was continually quoted because guess what? This was a letter written to the Jews. Jews would have literally read this, and if that wasn't an actual thing that prophets would have spoken, they would have caused an uproar over this passage. They would have been like, of course Christianity is false. That's nowhere to be found. But that was never a thing. And in fact, this is not the only time that something like this happens in Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, Paul quotes Jesus, but we can't find what, like Paul says, Jesus says in the Gospels at all. Jude quotes the book of Enoch. That's not actually in the book of Enoch. In fact, John ends his gospel. The apostle John, he ends his gospel by saying this. He says, there are so many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain all the books that would be written. So does that mean we can't trust it just because we don't have the quotation that we can go look for it? No, it's it's clearly something that was repeated by the Jewish scribes and Pharisees because the prophets spoke of it so often. And so we could have confidence in that. But most believe that this alludes to two different Old Testament passages. This is kind of our best guess at what we think that this alludes to. Isaiah chapter 11, verse one. Isaiah 11, verse one, it says, there and then a shoot will grow out from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So the Hebrew word for... Uh, branch. If you say it, pronounce it, it sounds like Nazir, sounds like Nazareth. Jesse was David's father. So if you remember back to when we studied the genealogy, we know that Jesus has to be a descendant of David, right? And so we link it maybe to Isaiah chapter 11, one, because it feels like it's maybe a play on words that uh, the writers are doing, or it could allude to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone, someone people turned away from and he was despised and we didn't value him. So it's potentially linking how Nazareth was a despised community that people didn't like. And it's linking it to Jesus himself that he was despised because he was from there and he was despised because of who he is. So the good news in all of this and this crazy, weird, hard story that we're studying on Christmas Eve about children being taken away from their parents and baby Jesus and his family on the run as refugees trying to find a safe place to sleep and stay in the middle of all of this tragedy, we find great hope. And we find great promises fulfilled by God himself. That while Jesus was rejected by the world, He was rejected by the so-called king of the Jews, Herod himself. He was rejected so that we could all be accepted. He was rejected so that we could all have acceptance from God himself, that we could uh, be truly taken into the family. And I think when we typically read this story or stories like this, we look at Herod as like a super evil ruler and we give him all the blame, and we're really angry at him, and we start to think, okay, cool. But then we look at Joseph, and we're like, yeah, that's what I would have done. I would have listened to God. I for sure would have been obedient, just like he said. 
We start to look at ourselves like the hero of the story, but the truth is we're not the hero of the story. Jesus himself is the hero of the story because if we really examine our hearts, if we really examine who we are, and if we're honest with ourselves, we too are like King Herod, a man who loved his authority, a man who never wanted to be removed from power, a man who did whatever he could to keep himself on top, man who is selfish, sounds a lot like me. And as we look at this story, we know that there is good news in the middle of it. Because when we read Isaiah 53, if you just keep going on a little bit, it is one of the most beautiful passages that you could ever read. And I want to remind you that the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before baby Jesus himself was born. 700 years before Jesus himself was born. Isaiah 53. If you do anything else tonight or tomorrow morning, go read Isaiah 53. It says this. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus did what he said he would do. He didn't give up on his word, and God continues to follow through on his promises to save us to save us from our sin, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our pride, from our arrogance, from our hope in ourselves and us building up our own little kingdoms here on earth, wanting to do absolutely everything we can to make sure we keep it all together. But Jesus himself came to actually do what he said he'd do and we could completely trust him and we can remember that he didn't just walk away when it got hard. He, he didn't just say, they're too hard-headed. He didn't just say, they're not worth it. He said, you're worth it. And I came for you. We have a great promise in what Christ has done for us. And we can completely trust him. By all of what Jesus has done, we could have our faith in him. And that's the thing that I hope you remember at it tonight. The one thing you take away And remember this Christmas season, as a baby in a manger came, but he was much more than just a baby. He's the king of the universe who came to seek and save the lost. You see, trust issues can keep us from experiencing the fullness of the relationships that we have in our lives. But the good news is, we don't have to feel like we can't trust God. Because Matthew 2 reminds us that we have three promises that we know that God says what he would do, he's going to do. We have a new freedom, we have hope in our pain, and we have acceptance in the work of him for our salvation. Let's pray. My Jesus, you satisfy My Jesus, you are a king who I love to sing to. 
Lord, I thank you for the great gift that we get to worship you tonight. I thank you for the great gift that in the middle of pain, we can look forward to hope. God, I pray for our own hearts that tonight, whatever it is that we're walking through, whether it's great joy or hard tribulations, Lord, I beg you and I pray that in the depths of our hearts, we would continue to grow in our trust and affection for you, Jesus. I pray that we would be reminded of these weird stories that we run across that are really hard to read and that they would strike our hearts to remind us of the great hope that we have in you. That we would be reminded of the reality that you are a God who came to save. You are a God who loves and is compassionate and pursues us relentlessly, Jesus, and all we have to do is trust in you. That's all you're asking us for, is our trust. Jesus, I pray that we would trust in you. And I pray that we would continue to give our trust to you over and over and over again, not just in the seasons where things seem really difficult and we're trying to buy you uh, to do good things in our life, but in the seasons where we're celebrating and we don't feel like actually giving over the control to you. Jesus, I pray that we would be able to always trust you with all things, our relationships, our friends, our families, our work, our stresses, our frustrations, our pain, our finances, our worship, everything, Jesus, would we trust you with it all because you're worth it. And you're the God who says who you are. You're the God who continues to do what you say you'll do. And that's good news. Pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.